This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. When people think about nutrients, they typically think about fruits and vegetables, but people don't realize that herbs and spices traditionally have more good chemicals than even fruits and vegetables. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss how nutrients and herbs work in your body. We'll find out about cooking with winter produce. We'll learn how to treat common winter injuries. And lastly, we'll explore online garden education. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and this show. Welcome back, sir. How are you doing? I am doing awesome, and hopefully you are the same. I am. I am very, very intrigued by this interview because this is a new approach that we're taking to nutraceuticals. We've never discussed nutraceuticals. And when I say we, I not only mean you, I mean any guests that we've had on, we've already sort of approached it and we're going to talk about like an ailment or a condition and then talk about the nutraceuticals that might apply to it. But we're going a totally different direction that I think will be very interesting to the listeners today. I'm stoked as well. What we're going to talk about is how nutrients and vitamins and, and all the good things that we need to build our body, how they actually work in our body, right? So what's the first thing we need to look at when we consider how nutrients, drugs, vitamins, and herbs work? Well, the question I get asked a lot is, how can one herb or vitamin or mineral or nutraceutical have so many different actions? And the reason I get asked that, I think, is because in our world, we're bombarded by messages and advertising about new drug this, new drug that, that's clinically proven. But they always say clinically proven to do A. It's just one single thing. So when we see something with clinical evidence that does multiple, and in some cases, many multiple things, it just doesn't make sense to us anymore. But if you sit down and look at your body and the therapeutics we put in it, and those are drugs, vitamins, minerals, herbs, etc., and look at how they actually work, it kind of starts to make sense. And that's because our bodies only have one real source of inputs, and those are the things we put in it. And you can either get them from your nose, your mouth, your skin, but that's pretty much it. And your body has to do everything it does using substances that only go in those limited pathways. And if you think about it, our body does a ton, just a ridiculous amount of stuff with such very few sources of inputs. Yeah. When you raise this with me, it's food for thought, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Like we only can get these nutrients 
like organically, as you said, through the nose, through the mouth or on the skin. That's it. Right. So I guess our body has adapted to the point where it actually gets multiple uses from the inputs because it has to. Isn't that essentially what you're saying? Agreed. Your body, my body, everyone's body is remarkable in its complexity, but also in its interconnectivity. Mm -hmm. And because there's such a wide variety of these interconnected systems that all rely on the same inputs, they need to adapt to do that. And that's why, for example, you take things like vitamin B12, vitamin C, vitamin D, minerals like calcium, magnesium, iron, and then nutrients like fiber and protein. They're all used by virtually every organ in every body system. And I didn't pick those because they're the only ones. I pick them just because they're pretty much the most well-known. But every nutrient you take in you is used multiple times and reused multiple times by multiple organs and multiple systems out of sheer necessity. And to your previous point that, you know, the drugs that we take to do certain things, it's marketed to do those things because, you know, most people think in a binary manner, right? I have this problem. I want something to fix this problem. But like something, something like uh, the magic blue pill Viagra, it existed as a blood pressure drug. Yep. It only became apparent to people that it might have a spinoff effect in sexual health. And then it was marketed thusly. But Viagra was for blood pressure. It was not used as a sexual aid yep. historically. Similarly, Rogaine, I think, is another blood pressure drug that had the spinoff effect of helping people grow some hair. Sadly, not me. Uh, but that's how Rogaine came about. It was, it was a blood pressure drug and not, and not having anything to do with hair. Yep. That's often the case that happens with what are called blockbuster drugs is researchers were looking at compounds to do A, right. and they found side effect B, C, and D. And then someone in marketing goes, hey, we can make money if we sell it for D. Right. Forget about A. Let's go for D. Right. There's a very famous drug, which we can't name, that's being marketed right now across North America. It was meant to help with diabetes, but the spinoff effect is it's actually a suppressant of appetite. And now it's being marketed as such to help you lose weight, hmm. when really it was meant to deal with blood sugar initially. But we can't mention what that drug is. So don't write me. Fair enough. So if what you're saying is, is true, and we're going to take that at face value, why is it important not to have deficiencies in these compounds? And by compounds, I'm referring to the vitamins and the drugs and the nutrients and the herbal remedies, etc. Well, the reason is because your body uses it in so many ways and so frequently, and that's for many of these nutrients, if you have a deficiency, it, not ha it doesn't have just one negative health effect. It's not like if you're deficient in item A, okay, you have this problem B. What ends up happening is it's a cascading of multiple negative health effects. And I'll give an example uh, using one of my current favorites, vitamin K2. Yep. And it's an interesting vitamin. As is, it was once relatively abundant in our diets, and now due to multiple reasons, it's virtually non-existent. So you look at K2. It plays an active role in, and this is a list, your liver, your lungs, your kidneys, your eyes, your brain, your heart, your blood, your stomach, your colon, your skin, your arteries, your bones, your bladder, your nails, your joints, your nerves, your pancreas. And I'm just going to stop there, even though I could go on for about another three minutes. Hmm. That is just one single micronutrient. That's one that you only take micrograms of a, a day. Now imagine if it were, if you were deficient in something like calcium, that's a macronutrient, or vitamin C, or 
gosh forbid, both, then you could have serious, serious problems. And the longer a deficiency goes on, the worse the cascading effect is and the bigger the problems become. Huh. We talked a moment ago about, you know, the benefits of, of you know, happening to find out that a, a drug which is used for X is helpful to use for Y ailments. But there's a potential downside to that too, right? Definitely. And when it comes to pharmaceuticals, the multiple effect happens as well. And this is one reason why if you take drug A for problem Z, it may help with problem Z, definitely. But here, it may also cause side effects, P-Q-R-S-T-U-N-V. Right. And some of the side effects may be mild, but some may be severe. And the side effects are not only because the drug itself may interact with multiple systems beyond the one associated with the original condition, but also because the biological causes of the original condition may interact with other body systems. A prime example of this is heartburn. And the most common drugs for heartburn prescribe, it's one of the most common prescribed drugs in the world, causes both iron and B12 deficiency, as well as increasing the risk of bone fractures, pneumonia, and C. difficile infection, which is a pretty nasty infection. Yeah. And that's all just to prevent heartburn. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the dichotomy between pharmaceutical drugs and natural health products. Do they operate the same way on that level with a multiple-use nutrient? For the majority of natural products, no. And the reason is you have to understand how the concept of drugs are versus the concept of natural products. Yeah. Drugs are normally ultra-refined and concentrated products, and they're refined to such a high degree that they're usually effective for one specific condition, and they are pretty darn good at it, but often at the cost of some serious side effects. And part of the rationale behind that also is the fact that when you take a drug, you expect it to work and work fast. You don't expect it to gradually work. And to do that, it's got to be concentrated, and it's, it's got to be pretty harsh acting. Now, on the other hand, most natural products are either nutrients that our bodies are tuned and supposed to get, or plants that are minimally processed. And because of this, their effects are less dramatic, often slower, but also the risk of side effects is much, much, much reduced. And normally when I say stuff like this, someone goes, okay, but what about isolates? Because there are natural compounds that are isolates. They're processed. They're isolates. Yeah. And there are isolates from natural compounds, plants, um, that for the most part, these are very similar to vitamins or minerals in that they're nutritional compounds that have multiple uses in the body. And what they do, though, is the body is tuned to get them. And what I mean by that is if we'll take something like chlorophyll. Yep. Chlorophyll is the green pigment found on plants. Every time you eat something green, you're getting a minute sub-therapeutic dose of chlorophyll. I don't care where you're from or what you do, your body is designed to take in chlorophyll. Your body is not designed to take in pharmaceutical drug XYZ that is synthetically produced and then ultra-refined. Mm-hmm. It isn't. So you expect there'll be some differences. Now, here's the thing. If you took a plant really high in chlorophyll, for example, mulberry leaves or alfalfa sprouts, and extracted just the chlorophyll leaving behind everything else, you get a therapeutic dose. And what can chlorophyll do for you? Here's another big list. Stimulates your immune system, combats fungal infection, detoxifies your blood and your digestive system, prevents body and digestive orders, helps you breathe, gives you energy. It helps create the components for your body to produce blood, 
reduces hunger, prevents weight gain, prevents cancer, and I could go on again. Now, you might say, okay, with a list like that from an isolate, it's going to have a harsh side effect. Well, here's the fun part. The downside to chlorophyll is that if you take way too much, and I do mean way too much, your urine and your poop can change color. Mm-hmm. And that's because your body takes what it needs and the rest it leaves to eliminate into the bathroom. But that's it. No nasty, harsh effects. There is no massive negative to taking it. Unless, you know, you're, you don't like the color green, but I hear you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what about herbs? Does it work the same way? Well, herbs actually are, are even more complex. And for this one, we'll take something like golden seal. Mm-hmm. Uh, golden seal is one of my favorites. It's native to southern Ontario, and it's used worldwide. And you look at golden seal. The indigenous people used it for immunity. In eastern cultures, it's used as a digestive. And this herb's undergone a fair bit of research. Scientists have identified 75 active compounds in golden seal, with 46 of them having known effects. And you might go, okay, 46. But here, remember, once again, your body uses each compound for multiple activities. In the case of golden seal, these 46 compounds have been found to have at least 453 activities affecting multiple organs. Wow. These include anti-aging, Alzheimer's prevention, antibacterial, antiviral, anti-cancer, digestive, bone building, cholesterol lowering, appetite suppression, anti-inflammatory, liver protecting, sugar balancing, weight loss, and the list goes on. And the reason behind that is it's the unique combination of specific vitamins, specific minerals, fibers, proteins, enzymes, fats, oils, and phytonutrients at their specific ratios to each other that give each herb its own unique set of actions. The herb's abilities are not just based on the individual activities of each compound, but also on the interactions of the compounds to each other and their interaction when they're inside you. And this is why for many herbs, the therapeutic doses actually change based on what it's being used for. And what I mean by that, for example, is with golden seal, if you're taking it as a digestive, you don't take the same amount as you would take for an immune stimulant or for blood sugar balancing. Because we, want, we found over the years through the research that the compound levels we want to be different to treat those different things. So how do we know? So like, if you know somehow, maybe because you've listened to the show, the golden seal is good for all those things that you listed. What is a consumer to do in terms of like what dosage they should take, depending on what they want to achieve? Well, there's a couple ways. One, definitely look at the package directions. Two, talk to someone, for example, a herbalist, a naturopath, um, your doctor, etc. The people who know what they're doing, and they'll guide you. They'll guide you on that. Because it also, the reason I say also to start with the packages, it depends on the strength of the product and the dosage form. I'm one of those people, I prefer my stuff to be in liquid form. Right. Because that gives me the freedom to vary my dose, and I find that it gets into me much faster. Like, for example, Golden Seal. I love that in a liquid. It's the only form I take. But other people prefer it in capsules, in tablets, and it will have a difference there. Okay. Well, that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. I had fun, as I always do. We look forward to speaking to you in the new year. Awesome. That was Joel Thuna. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cooking with winter produce on The Tonic. 
Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn-down cartilage, discover joint pain relief, Inflaheal Plus, and chondroitin glucosamine from New Roots Herbal. Only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an ISO-accredited lab. Available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Shauna Lindzen is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm struggling. You know, we have the the same things over and over and over again. I'm a creature of habit. I like making the same things. But every so often, I need to know what's out there to change it up. And eating seasonally is good. And we're into winter seasons. So help me out, Shauna. What do we do with the winter produce? So when you think of winter produce, what do you think of? Squash, the heartier stuff like kale, Brussels sprouts, that kind of stuff. Am yeah. I, am I getting yeah. warm? Sweet potatoes, yeah. beets, that type of thing. Yeah. And to be honest, when I think of new recipes that I want to create, I think of things like dips and spreads, especially since the holidays are coming up. Yep. You may be entertaining your family, you know, a, a little bit more than you typically do. You may be having people in. So I love to think of kind of savory dips, sweet dips. There's so many directions that you can go with dips and spreads. Okay. If that's true, what are you pairing it up with? So you've got the produce that we've identified, the root vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables like kale and Brussels sprouts, etc. What do you do to make them interesting to eat? To elevate them. So I like to elevate things like squash and sweet potatoes by roasting them in the oven on a high temperature because that gives the caramelization and it really bumps up the flavor. And then once you, you know, take it out of the oven, let it cool, you have to mix it with 
spices and herbs that complement the produce. Okay. So, for instance, um, the first one that you mentioned, the squash, I like to put cumin and turmeric and coriander, kind of the winter warming spices. It goes really well with the squash. And I also like, I'm just thinking through like tahini, like sesame paste. That goes well with like a chickpea, a squash. And you can start mixing all of these things together. And I'm thinking of combinations I've made before. So for instance, if you take squash and mix it with pear, Mm-hmm. and you roast some pear, that's delicious. Or chickpeas mixed with like a hummus made with pear, delicious. You put pear in hummus? Oh, yeah. I've done that many times because it gives it a bit of a sweet flavor so you can roast the pears first. And in the tonic coming out in January, I put in an article with how to make the best really smooth hummus And if you want to elevate your hummus, besides pears, a really good tip is Mm -hmm. to boil your chickpeas first with some baking soda. Hmm. And what does the baking soda do? It breaks down the skin of the chickpea and makes the, once you puree the chickpeas, it makes it ultra smooth. Okay, that's a good idea. When I roast vegetables, it's interesting. I've been using... 350 or 400 convection. When you say a quick roast at a high temperature, what are you talking about? I typically do 425 convection, which is, depending on your oven, that could be a size 450. What it does is it, and you do have to put quite a bit of olive oil on because it really caramelizes it. If you do it low and slow, it it does, the sweetness comes out, but you don't get that kind of dark sugary caramelization if you don't do it high enough. So anywhere above, I would say, 400 on your oven Mm -hmm. will give it a really good caramelization. And you're looking at about 20 minutes, right? 20 minutes, half hour? Yeah, depending on what it is. The hardier root vegetables, like the winter vegetables, typically only take 20 minutes. But something like a beet... Usually what I do with my beets is I wrap them so that they almost steam and caramelize. Like I'll wrap them in tinfoil. For people who don't like to use tinfoil, a good tip is to wrap it in parchment paper and then tinfoil. I've been roasting vegetables with aromatics. So I've been roasting. You kind of have to time it right. That's why I was asking about the timing. I'll roast shallots and garlic at the same time and make a soup with the chickpeas. So yeah. like, so I'll do a squash chickpea soup with roasted shallots. It's really easy to execute if you roast them all at the same time, including the herbs that you want to use. And then you just puree it with some stock or some water and you've got a soup pretty quickly. Yes, exactly. I have a roasted tomato soup that I do with that technique on very high temperature. I think I do 450 and I slice Roma tomatoes mm-hmm. and I put big cloves of garlic and smash them so they're whole, but I've smashed them. Mm-hmm. And the liquid from the tomatoes literally protects the garlic from burning. Yeah, Naomi's been doing a roasted tomato one with garlic too, roasting feta at the same time. And then the feta kind of, it doesn't quite get melty. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. But then you grill up some bread. Well, Naomi's been making the sourdough bread. So we've been having sort of like crostini 
with the mm-hmm. roasted tomatoes, with the feta and the chickpeas, which is actually, it's, it's a pretty well-balanced meal. Outstanding. Yeah, no, it's really good. Isn't that well-balanced? Yeah, that's a good vegan or vegetarian because you've got the feta. Yeah. So great idea. And now that the holidays are coming up, that idea is really good to use as a spread yeah. for crostinis. Like you take the sourdough that she made, you slice it up, you toast it with a bit of olive oil, and you put that as a topper. So we usually start with the nutritional value. We got to talk about it. You're the dietitian. So, <laughs> so when we're talking about these winter vegetables, what are we getting out of them? Well, why is it good to eat them? Okay. So many reasons. When people think about nutrients, they typically think about fruits and vegetables. Right. But people don't realize that herbs and spices traditionally have more good chemicals than even fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And the reason being berries and seeds and spices, they're grown from the plant themselves, and then they typically will fruit and blossom. And a good example is a zucchini, like the zucchini flowers, right? Mm -hmm. Those have a lot of nutrition. They come from the same plant the zucchini comes from. So there are so many really healthy chemicals, like plant chemicals, that you can get from herbs and spices. So... If your aromatics are things like garlic, shallots, roots like ginger and turmeric, Mm -hmm. they're full of different plant chemicals. And even things like rosemary and thyme and parsley, they actually are studied in terms of like anti-cancer effects on your cells. So I would highly recommend to use as many aromatics and herbs and spices as you can. Like, don't just use them as a garnish. Use Mm -hmm. them in your recipes. All right. So now you've hit the R word, the recipes. Yes. And you've talked about, you gave us the helpful hint with the hummus. Let's spill it. What else would you do with these? Where do you go with your recipes? Let's see where we go. Like the R word is my favorite word, recipes. So when you think of good recipes, so I love talking to you about it because you're such a foodie. (laughs) So if we think about things like eggplant mixed Mm -hmm. with tomato, mixed with onions, you could even throw some capers in as your umami in there. I think about like we were talking about hummus. You can roast some beets and mix it with tahini and put in maybe a little bit of lemon juice or balsamic vinegar to give it or red wine vinegar to give it that vinegary taste. I actually, I just published an e-cookbook that's on my website, shawnalinson.com, and I have an excellent avocado dip in there, which is like a guacamole with a little bit of a twist to it, because I put green apple, pomegranates, lime juice, cilantro, some salt. It's just delicious. So Mm. when you think of the traditional dips and spreads, you can put twists on them. So, for instance, as I said, the hummus with some beets, the avocado dip with apple and pomegranate instead of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite dips that you guys make? That's right. I knew you were going to ask me this question. (laughs) I like doing a a white bean dip, so a cannellini bean dip. Yes, delicious. With Uh, with, Oh Yeah. uh, Usually I roast garlic and rosemary. I find that rosemary goes nicely with the cannellini Mm -hmm. beans. Beautiful. With a good quality finish olive oil. And then it's a question of what you have with it. It's not so much a dip, but we've been roasting carrots, which is another Mm -hmm. root vegetable, which is pretty accessible in winter, with harissa and honey. And then you finish it off with a tahina. 
sauce with it's a date sauce. It's not called sauce. I can't remember what it's called. Like oh, a, it's a syrup. It's yeah. a date syrup. The date and, syrup, right. Yes. So with the tahina and the date syrup on the roasted carrots with the harissa, it's phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's funny you say that because in a cooking demo years ago, I made, do you remember that life-changing bread that Sarah Britton put out a few years ago? Sure. I actually, you can Google it, Shauna Lindzen life-changing bread because I wrote about it in the paper, the Toronto Star, I think a while ago. It has hazelnuts and a bunch of nuts and seeds. You make that bread, you toast it, and you mix the date syrup. I think it's called, is it called something like sil? It's S-I something. Okay, I well, I'll research it. Naomi will have the answer. and I'll oh, put it she'll on, have the answer. And I'll, and I'll put it on. The, we actually have it in our cupboard. I can't believe I don't know why. I, I, can't. <laughs> I have it in my cupboard, too. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on the website, so don't worry Excellent. about it. You okay. take the date syrup, you mix it with tahini, yep. and you get kind of that the bitter and the sweet together. Yep. You mix it up, and you put it on this toasted bread. It is heaven. Yep. And then now that I think about it, you could put any sort of cheese, like a smooth ricotta would be nice because yep. it's plain. And then just some coarse salt and pepper. And you've got yourself a fantastic hors d'oeuvre or fantastic snack. Delicious. I love that you brought that up. I love tahini. It's, it can go such a in so many different directions. I agree with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. What do you want to talk about in the new year? Let's talk about chocolate, some heart-healthy chocolate. Okay, I'm in. We're talking vegetables now. We'll save the chocolate for the new year. Yes. Perfect. That was Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss treating common winter injuries on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Buston of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know, for what ails you. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, She's had extensive experience in dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie, and it's really wonderful to be here in the studio with you today. So thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to sort of get back to it. We'll see what happens with Omicron. Hopefully you don't have it and I don't have it, but... uh, (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. So like leaving COVID aside, there are other ways you can hurt yourself or, you know, be damaged and, you know, winter's coming and that sort of adds a whole new layer the precautions that we need to take. So what are the winter-related injuries that you see? Well, as an orthopedic surgeon, we see a really significant increase in sprains, 
strains, fractures, and dislocations. So it's the white stuff, and I'm talking about snow here, is uh, not so good for your balance. (laughs) Right. And I suppose it's like with the first snowfall, you know, the Toronto drivers lose their minds and they don't know how to drive properly. (laughs) Is it the same? Is it just that people just forget how to take care of themselves with the ice and snow? Is, Is that what's going on? I think so. I think you forget how slippery it is. And whenever there is that first freezing rain where we have like sheets of ice out on the ground, our merges go crazy. It's the number of wrist fractures. I remember one time I was working at the Toronto East Journal. I had 23 wrist fractures in one day. Wow. Here's an interesting tidbit. I have never broken a bone. Oh I've, my God. I have, never, I have never had an overnight stay in a hospital in my entire life. Oh, well, I'm touching wood somewhere. Yeah, here. I know. But uh, <laughs> I know through sports injuries, you're seeing all kinds of, of stuff. You just mentioned the, the wrist injury. So, so what causes these injuries? Is it snowboarding? What is it? Well, I think that uh, there's a combination. The snow and the ice make us susceptible to falling. And the sports that we tend to do in the winter all involve speed yeah. and slippery surfaces. So snowboarding, skiing, skating, tobogganing, they're all like so incredibly fun. You get such a high from doing them. Right. But along with these sports comes the danger of crashing into trees, crashing into each other, or just falling down and, and hurting yourself. So it's important that people become aware that there is an increased risk. And I think vigilance is the number one thing to do to kind of prepare yourself. So make sure that you've got proper equipment. Right. Make sure that if you're going out skiing, actually take a lesson so that you have some idea, some skill potentially to be able to handle what it is that you're you're trying to do. And actually coaches, a good coach or a good instructor can teach you how to fall properly so that it lessens your chance of injury. Should be the first thing that, that gets taught. I would think the, the other thing is like if you are doing a sport that requires a unique muscle set or set of motions, right? Like skiing is very different than walking, obviously, duh, you know, as is is skating, but maybe we should be warming up or perhaps building up the muscles before we actually get on the slopes of the rinks, right? No question. There's no question. And even starting a few weeks before you're going to go skiing to do some exercises to waken up those muscles that you're talking about, because they're very different. And so if, if you're in better condition, if you're stronger, then you're less likely to fall because you can control your body better. And I think the other, I remember this when I was running. I, I remember like sort of speaking with other runners and they would say, you know, most of their injuries came at the end of their runs because they were fatigued and your footfall is different. And if you're not used to, for example, running a 10K, you don't start running a 10K because you're going to injure yourself probably in the latter half of it. Are you finding that with winter sports that like just people just go too hard and they don't understand where their limits are and that's where the injuries occur? No question. It's always the last run of the day. Right. And, and I remember myself, like I grew up skiing yeah. and I loved it. And, you know, you're just enjoying the day, you know, yep. especially in these times, we get a chance to get out, yep. enjoy the sun, the social, but you're tired. And if you're tired and it, particularly if you have any pain, that's a signal to listen to your body and go into the chalet or take yeah. a break. Have your hot cocoa. Yes. <laughs> even, even Spike. <laughs> okay. Here's another fun fact. I have shoveled my own driveway for my entire life. Like as soon as I was old enough to do it, my dad put me to it, but my kids actually never did it. I still, <laughs> I still do it. I only you have want, one left at home. You want my address? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not asking for more work, but what I do know is if you don't know how to shovel or if you haven't shoveled, or if you're out of shape, that can be a cause of injury too, right? No question. And there's two issues. Everybody's heard about the heart attacks. Right. So, you know, if you have a heart condition, go to your doctor. But, you know, shoveling is really physically demanding. Right. And just like you mentioned earlier, a new activity, get the muscles warmed up, get them conditioned so that you can go out there and do your job. And I think technically 
people can get out there and they can just start using their arms and their back and they're just trying to throw the snow around, push the snow. Don't yeah. throw it. Take smaller shovel loads. Don't be like a he-man out there trying to get the biggest shovel uh, of snow you possibly can. So work your way into it and warm up and wear layers and wear good boots. And get a good shovel. I mean, there's good shovels and there's bad <laughs> shovels. I have I have a shovel that nobody's allowed to touch because it's my <laughs> it's my magic shovel. It's not too heavy. And, and I can do my entire driveway, which is really big, in about 15 minutes, no matter what the snow is, because I'm good wow. at it and I've done wow. it my entire life. But, you know, and this is supposed to be actually a very snowy winter. I don't know if you heard that. But with El Nina, we're going to get a lot of snow and there's, it's going to hover around freezing. So it's going to be the wet, heavy snow this year. So people really have to take care. They do. And, and, you know, if that's also the situation and you're not in shape because you can't necessarily get in shape just for that first snowfall, take breaks, take your time. So I have a dog as well. So in addition to shoveling the snow and, and not being in the hospital, I walk my dog at least <laughs> twice a day. And it's an Aussie breed, like a mixed breed. And Aussies have incredible energy. But walking the dog in winter is very different than walking the dog in better weather, right? There's no question. Um, I have an Aussie as well. Do you? And uh, yeah, I mean, they're amazing. They're amazing dogs. But boy, you do have to go out with them no matter what uh, the weather. And and I find it stressful when I have to walk, particularly if I go hiking down in the ravines uh, and there's a lot of ice. So I've got to pair those cleats. Did you? Okay, I haven't got my cleats yet. They're really, really helpful so I can relax. But if you don't have the cleats, take smaller steps. Don't do quick turns. If there's rails or trees, branches that you can grab onto to help, then um, use them to help you maintain your balance. But I think one of the biggest things is awareness. Like, you know those days where you've got the ice and then you've got just that little thin dusting of snow. Right, it's the black ice. The black ice. Very dangerous because you step on the snow thinking it's just going to be snow, but the ice is underneath it. And down you go. So be careful. Small steps. Don't turn quickly. And uh, if you're going, I was walking the dog this morning and I was in the schoolyard and the stairs, you know how they get filled with the ice and snow. Right. It's just a recipe for disaster. So be careful. Sometimes you're better off actually not walking on the sidewalk, but walking on the grass beside it because there's no ice buildup, right? Like it seems counterintuitive, but I actually keep away from the sidewalks because they don't melt enough like the streets do. Yep. And the grass doesn't accumulate the ice that the sidewalks do. I find it's the same thing even on the road when the tires have been there and they've compacted the snow, it creates almost the ice. So I kind of go between the tire tracks. Okay, so when people come to see you with these slip and falls, so how as an orthopedic surgeon are you dealing with this stuff? What's the protocol and and when should somebody come and see you if, if they've had a slip and fall? Well, if you've had a slip and fall and you have a deformity, you have swelling and you can't move the uh, limb, you definitely have to go into the hospital. If you're not so certain, you know, it feels more like a bruise and you can move everything and you could probably put some ice on it and wait. But definitely lots of pain. You can't put weight on it. You can't move the limb. You really need to go to the hospital and get it checked and and probably have an x-ray. Okay. And you're saying hospital, not clinic, right? Well, if you think you need an x-ray, I would probably go to the hospital. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a disaster in the wait times, but you go to your family doctor, they're probably going to have to send you off for an x-ray. And if you do have a broken bone, they're not going to likely have the facilities to treat you with casts or braces. So you may have to go down to the hospital. Okay. Are there any safety tips that we haven't covered yet that you think are important for the listeners to know? Well, I think that uh, also having a buddy when you're out there in the out there in the snow that it's not only the slips and falls but you can have a relatively minor injury but if you're out in the cold the cold itself can actually kill you i remember one year my mom uh we were skiing in whistler and she went off the slope and somehow ended up in a little crevice and she didn't get hurt but she actually like 
plugged herself into waist or chest height of snow, and she couldn't get out. And we're wondering, where the heck is she? Now, if she'd been by herself, that could have been a real problem. So I think having a buddy, having a plan to make sure that if you're hiking somewhere and you have a minor injury, that you have a plan to get out of there safely is important. Not that I'm going very far when I'm walking the dog. It's usually in the neighborhood unless we're doing an excursion, but I never go out in winter without my phone properly charged because the phones lose their charge really quickly in the cold, or at least the iPhones do. But you never know when you may need to call somebody to come pick you up if you've slipped and fallen, you know, like you you just don't want to be isolated. So I would say bring a phone, bring a way to communicate if you don't have a buddy to work with, to walk with. Yeah, that's a great point. And the other thing that's often missed in the cold is hydration. Yeah. You know, everybody thinks, so it's not hot. We don't need to drink. But you actually need to keep up with your hydration. If you're dehydrated, you're more prone to loss of coordination, loss of your strength, and you don't think as clearly. So it's important that you drink enough when you're, when you're out there doing your winter sport and your winter activity. Okay. So let's talk about adjustments. We have like maybe a minute or two left. What adjustments would you recommend to people who already have a workout routine for winter? Or like what, what sort of things do you need to think about? I think the most important thing is to actually warm up before you go outside, because if you're cold and stiff, that makes you more prone to injury. And it just maybe is an incentive to get you doing your warm up. And there's not really a massive change in your workout that I think you need to do, but I always believe in paying a little more attention to your core strength. If you have good core strength, then if you lose your balance, you're more likely to be able to actually catch yourself and stay upright. So those would be the two things, really good warm up, so your muscles are limber and loose when you get out in the cold and paying a little bit more attention to your core. Yeah, and I would say even stretching when you're done is more important when you're out in the cold too, right? Because you don't want your muscles to seize up with a temperature differential when you're coming in from the cold too, right? Absolutely. It's all about balance in our bodies. So balance in the body and balance on the ice. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jamie. It's always a pleasure. What do you want to talk about next time you're in? I'd like to talk about the power of isometric contractions. Ooh, okay. I don't even know what those are, so I'm intrigued. (laughs) That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss online garden education on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed. She's passionate about the connection between human health and nature and believes that regenerative gardens can help create food security and broaden ecological diversity. 
Melissa has been featured on Farmer's Footprint in Toronto Life, has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens, and has been a well-received garden expert online and in person. For more information, you can visit thegoodseedto.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. So today we're actually not going to talk about gardens per se. We're going to talk about how we might learn more about gardening, right? Correct. So it's always good to learn new things and take on new hobbies. But gardening isn't as simple as I'm going to put those flowers there and those herbs there. There's always something new and interesting to learn about it, right? There is. And I think as in any hobby or pastime, it's really great to go into something feeling confident ahead of a new season. I think so. If that's true and, and you know, and, and we're covered with a layer of snow right now, I'm probably not doing much outside. It's a good opportunity to educate ourselves, right? Definitely. And it's a great time to garden plan. And that can often be difficult to do if you don't have the knowledge to back up that practice. And so right now is a wonderful time to sit down, immerse yourself in some garden know-how, and then be able to take that forward into the coming season. So the topic of today's show is online garden education. Maybe you can explain the popularity and, and why people are so into it. Definitely. So I think that when we talked about garden education in the past, it was maybe something we did as sort of a non-certified program at a community college, something recreational, maybe through a local garden club or something like, you know, in person with sort of hands-on, but not. And now moving forward with online learning platforms becoming so popular, you don't have to leave home to learn about gardening. And in fact, the breadth of gardening courses that are offered right now online is really phenomenal. So anything from edible gardening, perennial gardens, cut flower gardens, and even if you were interested sort of in becoming a market gardener, there are courses for all of that. And it's super exciting to be able to access those from the comfort of your home. What's a market gardener? So a market gardener is someone who creates produce for the farmer's market and usually does it on quite a constrained scale. So maybe as small as an acre. Oh, I see. So like maybe like heirloom tomatoes or something that they're only selling on the Saturday or something along those lines. Yeah. But but like for com- for commercial purposes is what you're getting at. For commercial purposes. But I do think that they focus on really great, those courses focus on really great techniques if you are trying to up your garden game. And so what we've seen are professional courses. Uh, there's a Canadian by the name of Jean-Martin Fortier who offers a market garden course and a book. And a cut flower farmer by the name of Aaron Benzacane, who runs Florette. And so you have definitely professional gardeners who are taking these courses. But more and more, I'm seeing the lay gardener embrace these types of education because they're so compelling and the information is so well presented. So what's the advantage of the online courses as opposed to other formats for, for learning about gardening? I mean, definitely in the pandemic era, not having to leave your home is Advantage number one. Mm-hmm. Advantage number two is that we really see some sophisticated delivery platforms such as Kajabi or Thinkific that make pacing yourself through the course uh, really easy. And so all of the material is in this great online platform when you log on. And as you progress through, you go through different sessions or modules. There are videos often, lots of downloads. And the user experience is really positive. So I think it's a great way to learn. Are there tests? So 
that depends. Because <laughs> okay. I'm not in, like, let me tell you, like, after my undergrad and, you know, law school, it's been a while. I'm not sure I want to take any tests. Sure. So some courses, I'm thinking of perhaps Ryerson's courses and Gaia College's courses, yeah. do come with tests group projects, the like. So that definitely tickles some people more than others. Um, but, you know, lots of these are just about learning and you aren't tested on the materials. Okay, that's good to know. And what sort of time commitment are we looking at, Melissa? Like, I appreciate it, you know, in the home course, it's probably a lot of it is self-directed, but are we looking, how many hours a week are we looking at and for how long on, on average? Well, so the great thing about most online courses is you have access to them in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. So first off, if you bought one for a loved one and they didn't use it, or you bought one for yourself and you just didn't get into it this year, you probably can log back in next season. Mm -hmm. So some platforms are going to offer sort of intro courses that may be somewhere between six and 12 hours of material total. Mm -hmm. And other platforms are going to be more immersive, more intensive, and you know, be upwards of sort of 40 hours. So it all depends on what you're looking for, how much time you have. I mean, maybe you take some of that time you've been dedicating to listening to podcasts, not yours, everyone else's though. Yeah. And you, know, you put that towards <laughs> online learning and, and bettering your garden for this year. So you mentioned market gardening. What other sort of specific things can we learn through these courses? So often you can learn how to better be an organic gardener, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. You can learn how to be a cut flower gardener. And this is a huge trend right now. So planting annuals and perennials so that you can harvest them and bring them inside. And then also uh, there's some great perennial garden courses out there. So if you've got a blank slate, maybe at home at the cottage, and you're just like, whoa, this space needs an overhaul. This is a great starting place to sort of grasp what's possible and sort of how to, you know, eat the elephant, as they say. How tech savvy do you need to be to take these courses? That's a great question. Not very. So oftentimes what will happen is once you've purchased the course, you will create a user profile with your login name and password. And beyond that, it's very user friendly. Okay, so we've talked about the types of courses we could take and what the commitment is and and the rest. Do you have any recommendations for, for courses? And why don't we start with beginners? Like, what would you recommend for somebody who really doesn't know what they're doing? Sure. So the Platform Masterclass, which has become widely popular over the past three or four years and has classes and almost everything, has a great course on gardening taught by Ron Finley. So I would say that is... Your best bet if you are just starting and you want to just dive into something very compelling. Okay, and that's the beginner. What else is there for somebody who perhaps isn't a beginner? What else would you recommend? Sure. So Dutch garden designer Piet Udolf, who did, for instance, the High Line in New York City, mm. he's that garden designer. Wow. He offers a course. And I mean, you're really getting to learn from the master. And it has two tiers of uh, purchase price. So that also makes it really friendly. And so I would say that that's a really popular bet. Okay. Is there any concern, you know, that we should be learning from somebody who's local just because they'd have a better sense of, you know, from a practical perspective, what could be grown in the GTA? Perhaps. I think that really what we want to be learning in these courses is how to identify your specific site conditions. Mm -hmm. And so even in the GTA, I would say those vary greatly. Yeah, and true. lots of these courses are going to talk about that, like shade gardens versus sun gardens and how you are looking at your specific space and what plants will work together in harmony in your like tiny little ecology bubble. Got it. 
And might you have an online course? I do have an online course. So I am co-founder of an online course called A Year in the Urban Garden. And it takes the participant all through the journey from seed to plate. So we have 12 modules. They start uh, with garden visioning and planning and then go right through to seed starting, growing, planting, harvesting, recipes, the like. And it is an online course, as we've been discussing, and is great for the beginner as well as the intermediate gardener and really focuses on organic gardening practices. Yeah, so I got two questions for you. Number one, are there tests, Melissa? Are you testing people? (laughs) Only for you. Uh, No, we aren't testing anyone. And really the best part about this course is that all the way through the season, you have access to myself and the other co-founder, Luai, via email. We review your specific garden plan for your garden. And we also have some Zooms for the group and you get an SOS call. So if I wanted to take this or give this to a loved one as a, as a holiday present, what, what's the price point for, for something like this? The price point is $4.99 and it's over 400 pages of PDF module downloads. We have over 12 hours of video. And again, that direct email access to us through the whole season. So compared to what my personal consulting fees are, I think it's a great deal. Okay, so four ninety nine is four hundred ninety nine dollars. I just want to be clear. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Because I, when you say four ninety nine, I was thinking that is <laughs> that is a deal. I'm in. No, that, but not to undermine you, but by given the amount of, of volume that you're talking about, I, I think under five hundred is a great deal. It's the psychological point of four ninety nine. There you go. All good. There you go. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And if you want to know more about the course, yeah, please. Don't hesitate to reach out. It's called A Year in the Urban Garden, and the website is The Gardenology, spelled garden, and then the end is O-L-O-G-I-E dot com, and I'll give you that information in case you need it for the show notes. Yeah, it's going to go on the show notes uh, with a direct link so that people can go and access it. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Next time, I want to talk about the foundations of a good garden, and the foundation of any good garden is soil. Fantastic. That was Melissa Cameron. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Shauna Lindzen, Dr. Aaron Boyden, and Melissa Cameron. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us on It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.